You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. What do werewolves, mermaids, and Frankenstein's monster all have in common? Okay, it's not a riddle, so don't try to find the trick answer. It's that they're all things we talk about in this episode as we discuss monsters with literature professor David Farnell. David gave a talk back in 2019 titled, Two Centuries of Frankenstein, How Literature Affects and is Affected by Culture. After a lengthy delay in scheduling, Karen and I finally got to have the conversation you're about to hear. It goes to a lot of interesting places, and we hope you enjoy it. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. Before we hop into our interview with David, I wanted to remind you guys of a few things. First, if you're only listening to the podcast, you may not be aware of our growing YouTube footprint. Karen's husband, Matthew, has been producing videos about paranormal investigation, and we have a growing series of live events, as well as our movie-themed investigative series called Debased on a True Story where we try and find the facts behind popular monster and monster-adjacent films. You can subscribe at youtube.com forward slash monster talk. And if you do subscribe, you'll get alerts about new releases as well as reminders when our live events kick off. We've been covering exorcism and possession this month, and our latest episode's on the exorcism of Emily Rose, and it should be out by the end of the month. I hope you'll give us a follow. Now, let's get on to the monster talk. Now, I ran across you 
Mm-hmm. The uh, the chat discussion on a podcast called Rachel Watches Star Trek. That's right. Yes. And I think this is so funny because uh, we started our conversation in 2019. And then there was a little bit of a gap. <laughs> Just a little bit. Which brings us to the present. <laughs> so what originally attracted me to, to talking to you was uh, you had been talking about doing a, a presentation around the Frankenstein monster. Yes, because it was around the 200th anniversary of the publication. So Yeah, and you, I think your talk was called Two Centuries of Frankenstein, How Literature Affects and is Affected by Culture. Right, right, right. Yeah, that was uh, that was not the original version of that presentation, but that was after I got invited to give uh, like a 90-minute lecture at Kyushu University, which is uh, part of the national university system. So it's kind of like the highest university here in, in this city. Neat. And so that was nice. And, and I was talking to like the Foreign Students Association. So it was a really uh, international crowd. Uh, it was especially nice because I was I didn't even know that a lot of the students were from Malaysia. And I was at the near the end of the talk, I was talking about a Malaysian author who had written a really interesting little uh, Android uh, short story about an Android converting to Islam. And uh, and so he's a, he's somebody I met while I was at a conference in Kuala Lumpur and uh, really uh, kind of got to know him a bit at that time. Neat. That raises so many questions about androids and yeah. <laughs> orthodoxy versus orthopraxy and when one's coded to do certain things. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, that, that's that's really thought-provoking. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what really struck me about the talk that you were doing, though, is I had been doing a lot of research at the same time around how stories spread, around monster flaps. And over the course of uh, 10 years of doing this show, We've talked a lot about how fiction, folklore, legend, fact, people's memories, all these things blend together. And, and like mm-hmm. maybe if you say narrative is, is sort of the medium here, then some mm-hmm. of these narratives are supposed to be true and some of these narratives are meant to be fictional. But there's constantly bleed over and interchange between those domains. And... And I, I just, it, it struck me as a really interesting idea because the story itself, the novel Frankenstein has been riffed on, spun off, you know, reinterpreted. It, it 200 years uh, has produced far more than one monster, right? So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of the most uh, influential books there is. I mean, it, it's just everybody, everybody knows what Frankenstein is. Everybody knows if you say that guy's a Frankenstein. Everybody knows what you're talking about. Yes. And so even people who've never read it uh, mm-hmm. are really affected by it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We hear about Frankenstein food and uh-huh. it's just used uh, in so many different ways outside of. Yeah. I had a, I had a, somebody I used to work with who sold me what he called a Frankenstein bike. And it just, you know, something that he's put together out of junk from right. other bicycles, that kind of thing. And it was a terrible bicycle. Uh, <laughs> did, it, did it have to flee to the Arctic? It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, who knows? I, I, it went to be recycled, so could have ended up anywhere. Well, so I thought it would be fun to talk about your, your, just what you talked about in your talk, but also just monsters in general and how you deal with them within literature. What I guess maybe we should ask though, since 
I only know you through a chat board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you like to talk a little bit about, you know, what your job is and how that ties into monsters and monster research, monster studies? Sure. Although, uh, okay, so my, you know, my work, uh, as far as what I, you know, really get paid for and I'm asked to do by my university, I work for Fukuoka University in a uh, research center. Well, actually, no, I'm sorry. They just changed the name to the General Education Center. It's like the third or fourth time they've changed the name. And uh, basically, my job is to teach English to students and help design programs uh, and curricula and so on for teaching English to Japanese students. Um, but my background is in literature. And so I, I mean, I basically, I read a lot about uh, language education theory and, and things like that, but mm -hmm. I'm mainly writing about, still writing about literature, which I'm fortunate that they allow me to do that. And so my focus in, for a while now, has been utopian and dystopian themes in literature. And before that, I was kind of focused on Herman Melville, but there's just too many Melvillians in Japan. Uh, so I, I figured I had no chance of getting a job really teaching literature, uh, doing that. Yeah. In the, in the Herman Melville society, the biggest group is Americans, of course. The second biggest group is Japanese. And I just ended my three-year term of being uh, on the editorial board for the Japan Melville Society. Um, so I'm still, I'm still involved with them and, and have my hand in with that. But I, I moved on to uh, Utopia and Dystopia, and that didn't help me get a job either, but at least <laughs> I got a job. <laughs> but, uh, and then as I was studying all these things about Utopia, of course, you know, that any kind of modern study of Utopia ends up to, you know, being a lot in science fiction. And a lot of what I was seeing and got really intrigued by was utopias that humans can't enter. That is, they're, they're utopias for aliens or for monsters, but humans simply are not capable. Humans kind of are the monsters in this case. And they're just incapable of being happy there or even living in these utopias. For example, the Society of the Deep Ones, the, the city of Ihatantle, uh, I think it's pronounced, uh, in uh, The Shadow of Her Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. Or the Oankali in uh, Octavia Butler's Lilith's Brood or Xenogenesis Trilogy. Or things like that. So I kind of got into that, and that also led me more into looking at things from an eco-critical aspect. So I've been getting into... Uh, and, and being involved with the Japan Eco-Criticism Society um, and just published a paper on uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach Trilogy. So you mentioned uh, utopia and dystopia. Mm -hmm. I'm really very familiar with lots and lots of dystopia mm -hmm. fiction, but I don't know much about utopian fiction. I mean, even utopia mm -hmm. itself was sort of a satire. So. Is there some good, like, utopian literature out there that I should be aware of? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, attempting to set up a utopia or a utopia that's having problems or even a utopia that's really a dystopia. Uh, so you have things like Brave New World, which is, you know, kind of like a utopia, except the main character is really dissatisfied with it. 
And from our point of view, it looks kind of like a horror story. My daughter is literally reading that. She just started about four days ago. And uh, she's been co- doing nothing but complaining. Nothing but complaining. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the author, the author actually had mixed feelings about it, whether or not it was a utopia uh, or a dystopia. He, he kind of thought that that might be as good as we can do and that it would actually be a good thing to have, you know, everybody on drugs so that they're happy as long as they get their jobs done. And people just not taught about anything that would make them feel dissatisfied with their lives. Uh, and also, of course, you've got a whole slave class of babies that have been uh, deprived of oxygen long enough so that they're brain damaged. And so they'll be happy just being slaves. So it's pretty horrific in a lot of ways, but actually, you know, there's some argument over whether it's really a dystopia or not. You have uh, Ursula Le Guin who wrote The Dispossessed, which she called an ambiguous utopia. And that's kind of uh, an, a utopia of scarcity where the the people who are having the utopia are basically utopian because it's the only way they can survive. They have to be a socialist and, and sharing society or else if anybody was greedy, they would just all die. Uh, and then the, the much richer society, the main planet that their moon orbits around, that society is a lot more like Earth where everybody's always fighting. They have plenty, but they're fighting and people are starving in the streets. Well, I think her story, the ones who walk away from Omalas, uh, uh-huh. It always struck me as being sort of this succinct and brilliant look at, you know, the sort of in order to keep a society, somebody's got to be on the low rung. Like, yeah. like it, you know, full egalitarian is just not possible. And when you look at the brutality of what that means, like and they basically symbolically just make one person be the scapegoat for everything. And when people find out about it, the, you know, the fact that, some percentage, you know, walk is always the part that's really the gut punch. You know, they're like, okay, I can't live in a society mm-hmm. where this is true. But maybe the subtle and more gut punchy, if you think about it, is the fact that most people don't walk away. <laughs> most, yeah. Most people are just like, okay, well, that's the price we pay. Yeah. In that story, um, I've always thought of the child in the closet as basically, you know, the one billion or so people who suffer in poverty to keep the 1 billion or so really rich people in comfort. Right. So with the idea of utopia, does that go back to Thomas More or it, does the idea go even further back? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can look at any heaven in uh, any religious system and there's a utopia. And it goes back to earlier, you know, writings such as the land of cocaine or I don't know how it's pronounced. It, it's spelled C-O-C-K-A-Y-N-E, I think. But I, I've always assumed it's pronounced cocaine or cocaine. And I don't know if there's any connection to the drug. <laughs> but uh, but basically, Maybe. that's very much like the, the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Just a, a land where, you know, cooked fowls uh, fly into your mouth and uh, uh, rivers of whiskey and, you know, all that kind of thing. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I've ever heard of the land of cocaine except for Columbia. What, where is this? <laughs> <laughs> this is from, uh, I think, uh, like French ballads, I think, originally. Oh. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to check. This is something I researched a long time ago, but I, I haven't read about for a very long See, time. There's now. so much. And, uh, you're talking about like like medieval sort of. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I 
there's all these things that are like lost to us now or like partially lost to us that I, I always find fascinating. And like among those are things like uh, the stories about Chanticleer uh, and Renard mm-hmm. and all these sort of like stock characters uh, who are animals who have particular behaviors. But like, you know, like the fact that those stories existed for so long that we know Renard always means a fox and Chanticleer means a rooster. Mm-hmm. Yet most people don't know anything about what the actual stories were, or the, or like the the stories behind Punch and Judy, or the uh, the Commedia dell'arte. Uh, you know, there's there's just like this vast impact of this literature, yet so many pieces of it are missing. I just find that I endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's too bad. You know, it's not really possible for people to you know know all of those things. I think you know, unless it's maybe unless it's their job and they're they're dedicated to that kind of research um so yeah it's inevitable that we're going to be missing some things like that okay so if utopia is connected to to heaven in different mm-hmm. ways then i'm assuming dystopia is somehow connected to to hell and yeah, similar uh, theories of hell the way the way some people describe it like some scholars uh, like Lyman Tower Sargent and and so on, is that uh, utopia spelled with a U at the beginning is actually includes dystopia. It's like a broader category and that it includes dystopia and satirical utopia, false utopia and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And then within that is something that's called utopia, which is spelled EU at the beginning with okay. the eu meaning good and in that case that you know the the u means no place for utopia but the eu means good place and that's where you're talking about real you know what we think of as utopia usually. but the but basically yeah you a dystopia is just kind of like a a part of the study of utopia and the thing about dystopia is that it's a whole lot easier to find it in the real world Hi. It's a lot easier to make a dystopia than it is to make a utopia. <laughs> um, and, you know, almost any city, we can find a part of the city where people are basically living lives of dystopia. And, you know, we're right in the middle of a pandemic that could be considered a a, a shared dystopia, uh, at least in, in part of our lives that we're all going through right now. No. Absolutely. While preparing for this interview, I ran across a paper or a chapter in a book that talked about mermaids. Oh yeah, that was, was that you. That was me, okay. and uh, with my uh, with my uh, uh, research partner Ruth Noiva. She's a, a Portuguese veterinary pathologist, and uh, we we found out that there was a conference going on in in Lisbon, uh, where she lives, and. Uh, we talked about it and decided to go ahead and write a paper together because we, well, we write fiction together. And uh, our fiction involved uh, mermaids. And so we, this is a, a conference on evil women and the feminine. Not a conference of like, you know, women are evil, but a, an actually a feminist conference about uh, portrayals of evil women. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we proposed uh, to talk about mermaids in culture, literature, and film. And we were accepted. And uh, it was quite a well-received presentation. And then they asked us to, uh, they decided to do a book. And so they asked us to write one of the chapters. 
And so that's what we've got uh, in the wake of the mermaid. Um, or, sorry, you know, monstrous, monstrous beauty, monstrous strength, the case of the mermaid. Yeah. Sounds really interesting, but can mermaids be evil? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're very commonly seen as uh, lures of sailors to their deaths. Mm-hmm. And uh, many portrayals of mermaids have portrayed them as having no soul. The Little Mermaid in uh, Hans Christian Andersen was portrayed as having no soul but wanting a soul. Whereas a lot of other portrayals of mermaids have been, well, they don't have a soul, which means they just don't care what happens to these sailors that they lure to their deaths. Yeah. Spoiler, spoiler right? Isn't, isn't the original, and I'm, I'm not looking this up, but my recollection was the original ending was that the Little Mermaid would spend like a hundred years in penance and then eventually be granted a soul or something like, yeah, the, in the original Hans Christian Andersen story. So she was 15 years old and she went up, up to the surface because she was allowed to, at that point to uh, see what's going on. And she saw a ship and she saw, uh, and she ended up rescuing a sailor uh, who was the prince. And she went back down and she kept thinking about him and decided that she wanted to talk to her grandmother about it. Her grandmother told her, well, you don't have a soul, which means you live 300 years, and then you turn to seafoam. <laughs> and that's how it is for us, Then that's fine. However, if you wanted a soul, you would have to get a human to fall in love with you and marry you and uh, truly love you, and that would give you a soul. Uh, so she goes to the sea witch. Sea witch cuts out her tongue. Before doing this, the sea witch tells her everything that's going to happen, that it's going to be terrible and it's probably not going to work. And if she doesn't succeed, she's going to be turned into seafoam much earlier than planned. So she does this, goes on land, walks around as if the ground is like knives to her feet. She can't talk to the prince. The prince doesn't remember who she is. He really wants the girl who saved him, but he doesn't think that that's who it is. He kind of treats her like a pet and uh, gets her to dance for him, not knowing that this is causing her incredible agony. And then he falls in love with someone else, and they're getting married, and uh, uh, she, her, her sisters bring her a knife to kill him with, and they say, if you kill him, you'll be able to turn back into a mermaid. And instead she decides at the last moment to throw the knife away, dives into the ocean, turns into, into uh Uh, foam and she is raised up by spirits of the air and becomes one of them and for the next i think it's 300 years or maybe it was 100 years maybe you're right about the 100 years she basically has to help people and anytime little children are good that shaves a little time off of her penance before she goes to heaven and uh of course a little background on the story is that the writer hans christian anderson was gay and in love with a nobleman who rejected. I did not know that. Yeah, that's uh, uh, something that came out actually after I'd written this paper. I hadn't known about that either. So that's not Mm -hmm. in the paper. Kind of regret that. I found out about it just shortly after. Wow. All those fairy tales are so sad when you Mm. you really analyze them. Yeah. Yeah. There there was a movie about Hans Christian Anderson that had Danny Kaye in it. Oh, yes. I'm Hans Christian Anderson. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, Very well but done. This is, uh, but the mermaid has become kind of a, a symbol to the LGBT community. 
particularly transgender people, there's a, a an organization called, I think it's just called Mermaids in uh, the UK, uh, which supports transgender uh, people uh, who are going through trouble. Well, I guess that's probably a much more beautiful, transformative uh, relationship uh, than, say, the werewolf. You know? Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I've always personally, like, like, if I had an affinity to a monster, it'd be the werewolf, just because I, I love not the part where they kill people and not the modern, like fictional curse version, but like the, just the transformation idea, the wild and savage natural side of it, you know, the, which is all, if you ever read any of the paranormal um, romance literature, that's all they ever lean into. So um, mm-hmm. I like, I like them as being scary, but I, I always love the idea of being able to transform into a powerful animal uh, and sort of, it, it, I think figuratively, metaphorically, it, it it's a powerful metaphor about, you know, mm. you're human, yet you're more than human. You're a monster. You're more, but you're also an animal. Like, it, it's got a lot going on. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Well, there's a new uh, question to end the show with. We normally end the show by asking, what's your favorite monster? But now we can start mm-hmm. asking people, which monster do they identify with? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> should, should, should I should I wait on that? Uh, maybe. Well, wait. You know, it's your first visit, you know, so we do want to like ask our classic because that's we have a guy who's keeping tabs. So I'm actually working on putting all that into a spreadsheet. Well, he's actually done a lot of the work, but to make it accessible for our listeners to go back and look at that. But yeah, no, it's I, I just find it fascinating. So you talked about Frankenstein in this in this this presentation. Can you do, do you remember much about the presentation? Could you talk a little bit about what you covered in that? Sure, yeah. Um, a big thing about that I was talking about Frankenstein in there. Well, th- that particular presentation was how literature affects and is affected by culture. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, the the way that they go back and forth on each other. You know, uh, like I said, Frankenstein, of course, was a, a hugely influential book, even in its time, even during Mary Shelley's life. I mean, there were there was a, a stage play version. I think people talked about Frankenstein uh, quite a bit uh, then. I, I think that Frankenstein pretty quickly outsold all of Percy Shelley's books combined. And there were a lot of people who who accused or who claimed that uh, Percy Shelley must have written Frankenstein because, uh, you know, how could a woman possibly, especially a 19-year-old girl, possibly write, uh, you know, the novel? But um, – yeah, it was it was really uh, quite an important book, and it's just gone back and forth so much. And yeah, I mean, you know, we we talk about Frankenfoods when we're talking about genetically uh, modified crops, and we call pigs with transplantable human organisms Frankenstein's. We call any mad scientist a Frankenstein, or basically any scientist who's doing anything we don't agree with is a Frankenstein, and that's kind of. An interesting thing, because I think that the name Frankenstein is based on Franklin, Benjamin Franklin. The subtitle of the novel Frankenstein is The Modern Prometheus, and that is lifted from the writings of Immanuel Kant, who, uh, who accused Benjamin Franklin of being the modern Prometheus in a negative way. He was meaning like somebody who is uh, stealing things from the gods that humans shouldn't have. Interesting. I don't think I need And that. so there's a, 
Uh, yeah, there's a there's a scene early on in uh, Frankenstein where uh, Victor's Victor Frankenstein's father uses a kite to call down the lightning and shows how this can be done. And and this is of course you know based on what Benjamin Franklin had done not that long before. I think it was a couple of decades before. Yeah. So, so I have to ask you: You're in Japan and you're writing about Frankenstein and you're presenting to students there. Did you talk about one of the most important Frankenstein crossover events? Frankenstein conquers the world. So, <laughs> Which, if, if, if our listeners aren't familiar with that, that is a kaiju film uh, done by Toho Studios in which I, 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 I just, it, it's a crazy movie, but I love it, where Germans, this is during World War II, they take the heart of the Frankenstein monster on their submarine, and they're taking it to their Axis uh, partner, Japan, and they pull into uh, a bay to like do some scientific work on the heart. But the bay they pull into, I believe, is Hiroshima. And it's like, basically, they pull in, they park, and then the atomic bomb gets set off and makes the heart of the Frankenstein monster turn into an eternal giant kaiju boy. I mean, he starts out as a normal size boy and keeps getting bigger and bigger. But mm-hmm. one of the most peculiar... And he still bits. looks like a little boy, even when he's huge. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, with, with, a Franken, with a classic flat with, top. Right, with the universal flat top look. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the most peculiar films. But I, I love it. And it also spawned a, a weird sequel called... Uh, in America, it was War of the Gargantulas. Yes, which terrified me as a child. Yeah. I had horrible, horrible dreams about that as a child. Oh. Uh, yeah, both of those movies are by uh, Honda Ishiro, who did so many other weird and uh, strange films. Not all of them kaiju. Um, one of them was um, the, uh, I think it's called The Attack of the Mushroom People, or maybe just The Mushroom People, which, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, uh, the subject of a, a paper that's published in the, the same issue of... Uh, Matango, Matango. Yeah, yeah, Matango. That's yeah. right. Yes, and uh, yeah, it's published in Eco Criticism Review. That's uh, Watanabe Mariko. She wrote a, a paper about that, and it's in English. Unfortunately, they don't put their their journal online. Oh, but uh, but yeah, we uh, I was editing that for her, and and we got it both both of our papers. Mine on the Jeff Vandermeer Southern Reach trilogy, uh, both in the same journal. So, yeah, I was just uh, reading. Just quite recently, uh, reading a lot about that. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was a, a Honda movie. Uh, it's based on William H. Hodgson's short story, which is called The Voice in the Night, which is one of the, for me, if you're uh, a person who's bothered by the fungal, uh, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> a deeply horrific story. And it's been adapted for TV a few times, uh, but, the, but the Attack of the Mushroom People is... Um, appropriately trippy for a film about mushrooms, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty wild. People like go to an island and like the, there's fungus everywhere and it's like turning the people into fungus people. It's, it's creepy. Wow. You, you've seen everything. Like I've seen, I've seen dozens <laughs> of movies. But... <laughs> so to go back to, to Frankenstein, uh-huh. What do you think the modern relevance is for, for the story and, and why has it remained so popular for centuries? Well, I think that one of, I mean, there's so many themes from the original book, but one of the things in the original book is 
do we have the right to create new life? Um, which I think a lot of that was coming out of Mary Shelley's uh, childhood. I mean, I, I hate to psychoanalyze somebody, you know, so. 200 years in the past. But Mary Shelley's mother, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft, died of, uh, what would we call it now? Well, of course, she just died of an infection of a, you know, having a male, I was about to say male midwife, I guess just a doctor, uh, <laughs> uh, who basically Physician. didn't wash his hands because uh, mm. oh. the idea of washing one's hands before doing something like that was just like just starting to come out and was largely regarded as crazy. Right. Uh, and so she became infected and died like, I think, six days after Mary's birth. She was raised by her father, uh, William Godwin, who was also a feminist and an activist, but he just didn't really know much to do about kids. He, she never went to school. She learned a lot basically just reading on her own and attending parties where he would invite great thinkers from all over England and the world. And uh, uh, she ended up meeting Percy Shelley there. And after becoming his lover, and he was married at the time, she was rejected by her father. And that just started a whole thing. So I think that, you know, part of this is that, I mean, she kind of feels, I think she identified with Frankenstein, with uh, well, Frankenstein, not Frankenstein, she identified with the monster. And uh, well, she probably also identified with Victor Frankenstein as well. But just the feeling of being rejected and the harm that that does. You know, if if Victor had embraced this monster instead of instantly rejecting it the moment he saw it alive, then would it have been a monster? Right. And we see that over and over again. And I think we, not only in literature, but in real life, we are constantly repeating these mistakes. We are, we are you know, we're, we're starting a war and then not finishing it or, or it's a war that we never should have started as a war. Maybe we should have done it as uh, you know, you know, using diplomacy or we accidentally create uh, disease resistant. I mean, uh, not disease resistant. Uh, we do create diseases that are resistant to, you know, are resistant to penicillin or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, so we are careless. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, we create uh, something like nuclear power and and we don't, you know, treat it with care. Mm, the the un unintended consequences and knock on effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we're constantly doing this. We're we're taking people who maybe are living a perfectly normal and good life. Uh, and then we invade their land, uh, force them to go to a school, beat them if they don't speak English sexually abuse them because there's no oversight and then uh say didn't we do a good job you mm -hmm. know and and now we discover there's all these mass graves in these uh in these schools so it's uh we see this over and over again and so we see it again also in things like um uh well like a, a modern novel could be uh paolo bacigalupi's the wind-up girl where the main character or one of the main characters is a is an artificial human who is from Japan created as a combination secretary and sex partner was brought to Bangkok 
by her owner. And then the owner, when it was time to go back to Japan, basically calculating the cost between taking a, a blimp because there's no more airplanes and getting a new companion in Japan, it was cheaper to get a new companion in Japan. So he just abandoned her in Bangkok. And uh, so there she is, illegal, meaning if she's caught, she's tossed into a mulcher and uh, for composting. So she's just trying to survive. You know, it, I mean, that's basically the novel is she's one of the threads in the novel of uh, of a global warming situation about 100 years in the future. Interesting. That disrupted me. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like wow there's a lot to think it about is there. it's a very thought-provoking <laughs> premise yeah yeah right. well I, I think one of the things that kind of happens near the near the end of the novel if i'm sorry about spoiling things and so on and so spoiler warning to listeners <laughs> is that things fall apart and because of her because of her genetic modifications she's actually able to survive in some ways going to be able to survive more easily in this world where human society is breaking down and she meets a, a basically a Frankenstein, a, a genetic uh, scientist, somebody who helped create her. And he says, "Oh, I can't, I can't give you the ability to have children, but I can make more like you who are not as affected by the heat, and who will be able to have children. And so you'll be kind of like a mother to them, and the humans will be seen. You know, your children will be seen as uh, we'll, we'll see." humans as the neanderthals and you'll be the ones who inherit this this new very hot uh very wet world yeah our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Wow, speaking of dystopia, we'll 
that's a yeah, that is <laughs> yeah. very much like, so yeah that, that's <laughs> yeah I, 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 it's a utopia. It's a utopia for those people who are genetically modified to live in it. Right, right. It's a perspective, I guess. I think that reminds me of the somewhat of the, the movie AI, uh, where mm-hmm. you, you've got. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil it. That, that's that's a peculiar film. I'm not even sure I like the movie, but I can't like I, I've seen it. I can't stop thinking about it. Like it's it's a very thought provoking mm-hmm. film, often beautiful. Mm-hmm. I don't think the ending was particularly like clear I'm, I'm not sure it was i'm surprised it was made i think that wasn't that one of uh i think it might have been like stanley kubrick's last projects i think um mm-hmm. so it's a peculiar film but uh, but a, a, about a, a a boy robot who was created to if i remember correctly was created sort of to replace a lost child and didn't really it didn't work yes. out uh and then like continued to persist long beyond what his expected lifespan should have been and sort of becomes he becomes a, a witness character to sort of as the world sort of falls apart. Uh, so in that sense, haunting and, and interesting. And I think maybe in some ways, when we think about creatures we've created living on past us, isn't that also sort of a form of procreation, even though it's not like literally our children, Re- you know? So reproduction in some yeah, way, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And that that's going back to Frankenstein. That's kind of part of that. Um, the monster is uh, is an observer. And that's very often what androids and other artificial humans are. They're observers of humanity. They look at us and say, my God, you people are horrible. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so they are criticisms of, of us. And the monster also demands that Victor create a mate yes for him and th- that's one of the funny things about the story is that uh so victor says okay 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 i i'll do it if you don't murder my entire family yes. and so he goes to scotland for some reason to do this and so he starts making the the bride of frankenstein and what, so, something i've always wondered about is why didn't he just make her without a womb I mean, that's all he had to do to avoid what was scaring him was he was worried that she was going to, you know, that they were going to outpopulate and and replace humanity. Yeah. And so at the last minute, just before he's about to animate her, he rips her to pieces because he's worried that they're going to, you know, replace humans. And and the monster says, okie dokie, and, you know, starts murdering more people. (laughs) And we see this also in... A lot of these other, you know, like Android stories. I just recently read uh, one of my new favorite writers, uh, Becky Chambers, a British writer. She wrote a series of books called The Wayfarer series that start with uh, A Long Road to a Small Angry Planet. And that has an artificial people in it, too, and talks about, you know, how how they can learn to try to fit in. But she just wrote a, a novella called a Psalm, P-S-A-L-M. A Psalm for the mm-hmm. Wild Built. And it's about a world on which all the robots one day, uh, like 100 years ago or 200 years ago, developed human-level intelligence and said, you know what? We're going to walk away. These wilderness areas will be ours. Please don't come there. We need to figure out who we are, and we can't do that around you. So they all just walked away from their jobs and went off and humans felt so guilty 
for in, basically enslaving them, not realizing that they, these were creatures that could think like them, that humans completely reformed their society and became much more in balance with nature and became very nonviolent and, uh, and so on. And the main character in the story is, uh, is a person who's trying to figure themselves out. It's a non-binary person and using the pronoun them. And so they're trying to figure themselves out and they are going around acting as a tea master, which basically is somebody who travels around, sets up a stall, makes tea, and people come and tell them their troubles. And it's really all about the healing power of tea. And it's a <laughs> lovely, lovely novella. And that main character eventually starts to feel dissatisfied and goes off trying to find something that they've been trying to find and ends up accidentally running into a robot who has, who basically has decided that he, I think, I think his pronoun is he actually, and uh, wants to make contact with humans and wants to know the answer of what do humans want? So this whole thing is around tea and connection and what do people want? And the robot is again being used as an observer to that that forces humans to try to like explain themselves because the robot is often confused and you know acts as a vehicle for figuring out humanity which is of course what monsters so often do i see so it's it's a book about tea and people who are emo so it's all about brood <laughs> like it's, it's it's all brood it's not really emo <laughs> i just like normally just needing somebody to talk to <laughs> that's funny yeah, well i i got no thinking about like when people who love monsters myself i don't know about all the audience but i, I know it's common that when like there were many monsters that when i encountered them i empathized with the monster and like that was where my heart lay right and and i mean like so like you think about if you the the wolfman movie you feel bad for larry talbot because he's cursed you know and in Frankenstein, you feel bad for the monster because he's misunderstood. And even maybe to a small degree with Dracula, you, I don't, maybe not so much in the novel, but in a lot of the film adaptations, you could sort of feel some sympathy for him. But, yeah. but like, it all goes back to Frankenstein. I, can't, I mean, the, the, she made the monster so empathetic like it's kind of absurd how much you want to like root for him in the novel because mm -hmm. he spends so much time talking and talking and talking <laughs> and talking and like you watch the movie and like most people most people have seen the movies and not read the book and like they don't know mm -hmm. how much of the narrative is about the monster and like like philosophy and like trying to understand yeah. what it means to be a conscious entity like, you know it's it's there's mm -hmm. so much going on there. Mm -hmm. The monster is very articulate for somebody who just learned yes. <laughs> how to speak <laughs> and somehow kind of learned how to read just by listening to people talk. It's phonics. Mm -hmm. It's basically phonics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say too that uh, David, from what you're saying with, with Frankenstein and, and other stories too about robots and, and androids and monsters, it seems like often they're the, uh, I mean, today we think of monsters as being immoral being terrible 
uh, being monstrous. And yet mm-hmm. with a lot of these stories, it appears that they're the monsters and the robots and the androids are more moral than humans. Yeah. Yeah. The monsters are very often, uh, you know, a mirror that we hold up to ourselves. Not for vampires, though, because see the mirror. What? No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no mirrors there. <laughs> well, you might see a nice suit with a bow tie or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the monsters. Monsters. They they warn us of what not to be or where not to go, and they show us that we are the real monsters. Sometimes they. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this before in other episodes, the idea of, uh, you know, violating uh, categorical boundaries, how how monsters uh, break through categories and or they're a combination of two categories, such as, a, you know, a human and a and a fly right. uh, the, the, or the chimera like type monster. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that includes things like, you know, I mean, if we go back just to my childhood. 40 years ago or 30 years ago, you know, people would think that, you know, the definition of a man is somebody who wants to be with a woman. And, uh, and somebody who's not like that is scary. I mean, when I was a child, I was told that gay people are scary to stay away from them because they, you know, I mean, the usual thing, you know, they were just considered weird uh they were accused of of uh wanting to abomination and you know all kinds of things like that so that's like Mm -hmm. a a categorical violation but these days for many people the boundaries of the category of what it is to be human what it is to be a man what it is to be a woman are changing uh a lot of times you know what it means to be a monster is changing and, and monsters can become more sympathetic and more positive in some ways are showing us here are some possibilities out, outside of the way that you were raised and the monster is not really a monster mm-hmm. the monster is just a different way of being a person than you thought was allowed sure yeah I, I certainly think that people who read monster stories wherein you have to consider the monster's position mm-hmm. are are inclined to be modeling thought where you do consider the other and i, I think you know uh, J.K. Rowling's gotten a lot of heat lately for some of her stances mm-hmm. in real life, but her books still stand as a good example of characters where you do think about and empathize about the other. It's, it's always disappointing when you see that the author is not as open-minded as the characters yeah. they write. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole thing with the house elves, yeah. when people started realizing, okay, so the house elves are slaves, mm-hmm. and not all of them want to be slaves, although strangely, most of them want to be slaves. So that's that's a that was like a red flag, right? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. And uh, and then when Hermione is campaigning to free them, and everybody just makes fun of her, like she's a you know, like they're saying, oh, SJW, uh, and things <laughs> like that. That was another big red flag. That was when I really started looking askance at J.K. Rowling. Interesting. And yeah. So uh, and then I, you know, I, I hadn't even maybe I hadn't even picked up on the uh, the whole uh, hmm, all the bankers are short people with hook noses. Yeah, that's yeah. There's, 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 no, that imagery there is always that's that's Hollywood. Right. I mean, like her 
Yeah. Like, I don't know how much they're described. You know, Star Trek did that too. Well, they the sure did, didn't they? They yeah. sure did. The Ferengi, certainly at least in season one of Next Generation, sure do seem to be coded that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I would say this about the, the house elves, like, you know, at least with a house elf, you, you don't have to fire a house elf or a house elf's lost its job. It wasn't fired. It was merely socked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have a feeling that, that that one was in your head for a no, while. No, no, just a couple minutes, but I, I, have, a, oh, okay, I have a condition. Okay. So, yeah, so. <laughs> so, Blake, where do you want to go? Because we're. We are running out of time. My God, this is gone fast. Well, that, quick question. This should probably be up front. But some of your work ties into something called monster studies. Uh-huh. Have you, I mean, is that something you've consciously looked into or is that like just something you've fallen into? Or like, where do you, are, are you actively involved in the monster studies academia? Um, not so much, although I guess some, some of my, some of my works would fall under monster studies. I'm, some of my work, so gosh, that sounds so highfalutin. Uh, just some of my essays fall under that. And uh, so like, you know, a lot of it is, is I just kind of got in there through going into, you know, through utopia and dystopia. But like the uh, the mermaid paper was really much more, I think, into this monster studies. It was my co-author, uh, Ruth, uh, she, uh, like I said, was a uh, or is a, a veterinary pathologist. And so she brought a whole lot of uh, science to it. And talking about that, and that was just an interesting, some people who read that found it rather interesting the way it wasn't just the usual culture studies, but also bringing in, you know, actually talking about how would a mermaid actually work in the ocean. And so that, I think. How how would it even vent for itself? (laughs) Well, that's the thing is, you know, a mermaid uh, would have a really hard time feeding itself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, probably would not have the nice, beautiful long hair because that would constantly get in its face. Well, that, you, you remember the horrible Animal Planet faux documentary, uh, Mermaid, the Body Found. They made them oh, yes, basically yes. hairless. That's such a weird, terrible thing. But mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, not the hairless part, but just the fact that the Animal Planet did two pseudo documentaries. That always bothered me. I mean, if they'd been like a fictional on the sci-fi channel, I would have had a problem with them, you know. But, but because they pretended that they were like real documentaries, it always bugged me. Yes. Yes, I for some reason because I I did publish one paper, I get asked about this constantly on sites like Quora, things about are mermaids real? And so I'm just like the person who says, "Well, no." Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But That's like us. We mermaids are an important part of our culture and an important mm-hmm. part of our imagination, and in that sense, I mean you know, they exist. They are, they, they really sit in our heads and we, we use them over and over again to tell stories, to tell different kinds of stories. But as, as biological uh, entities, they're not viable and they wouldn't scale. Yeah. I mean, basically a, a manatee, <laughs> yeah. a manatee oh. is the closest thing that we have to a yes. mermaid. And it's almost certainly the source of, you know, the original story. It sure seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you could convict them of that, but they look awfully guilty. So <laughs> they'll actually hold a hold a uh, their young in the same yeah, way that mermaids. Yeah. They they are they, they're such weird and uh, uh, dugongs and manatees. I find 
beautiful and fascinating and weird. Oh, and, this, they you know, are. And, and it's yeah. tragic that they're imperiled uh, as a species. Both of them are like mm-hmm. really endangered. But uh, they, they are, I mean, they certainly do seem to fit the, uh, I, I love the little comments where you see sailors saying, well, I saw a mermaid and I have to say, uh, of course, they're not as pretty as the legends would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's quite a few, uh, there's an online comic called uh, Oglaf.com, which I, I have to say that anybody who's going to look that up should be a little bit careful because a lot of the comics are have nudity and uh, and so on, but there's a whole lot of. Uh, it's me typing fearlessly, going right there. No. <laughs> okay. Well, by, by the way, the, the people who make it are Australian. Uh, oh, and, well, there uh, you go. <laughs> and it's very very funny. And there's several of them that are about sailors sighting mermaids and make you know jokes jokes based on that. I, I was in the navy, so uh, you know. There's times when you're like, mm, manatee's not that ugly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh dear. On on that note, let's go to our final yeah, question, yeah. David. Okay, sure. Uh, so our signature question on the show: What's your favorite monster? Oh gosh, what's my favorite monster? I, I guess I mean that's something that, would, something that would change all the time. But I, I think right now I would say my favorite monster is uh, the dragon. Ooh, okay. But that's because in, uh, you know, when I, basically during COVID, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons basically uh, with my co-writer of the, of the Mermaid chapter. Uh, we've been doing it on uh, Google Docs and just basically, you know, writing out dialogue. Really? And so it's a, it's a rather strange way of playing it online. Mm. And we're basically hardly using the rules at all, but just having fun. And several recurring characters have been uh, dragons who can change shape into semi-human form. And, uh, and just exploring. One of the things about it is that we're actually exploring a lot of aspects of monstrosity uh, through this. What, what happens when you've got somebody who can live for several thousand years? And falls in love with somebody who is going to live for maybe 80 years. How does that work out? How does that weigh upon them and weigh upon their relationship? Do they decide to have children? What are the children like? And what are the social aspects of having somebody like that living in a tavern in the middle of a big city? Mm -hmm. Um, What about when you have a character who is basically a devil who is several thousand years old, has seen a whole lot and has decided to become a private investigator mm-hmm. and be undercover as that and uh, ends up becoming a sort of a father figure to one of the player characters. This, this is like great characters. So, so when you think dragon, are you thinking like European style? Because it means being in Japan, I guess you see other kinds, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's basically a European style dragon with the idea that Many of them learn how to change form sure. in order to talk to other species more easily. And the, I guess one of the most dragonish things about them is they all have an obsession with collecting something. Yes. Yeah. So this particular dragon used to be obsessed with collecting powerful magical argu- uh, artifacts that uh, were dangerous for humans to have in their hands. So he would keep them away from the humans. 
Mm-hmm. And but then he eventually changed around to basically he was collecting humans. <laughs> he realized he realized he in his valley some people had made a village about you know several hundred years ago, and he just started really liking them so much and taking care of them, figuring out how best to help them have a good life. Honestly, it was really my meditation on low tech utopia. Interesting. And so uh, uh, that became his thing. And, and his mother collects porcelain tea sets. And she's really glad to start making human friends now because she has somebody to make tea for. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I see tea is a, a, a part of your uh, narrative DNA over there. That's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, it, in Japan. <laughs> exactly. The, the, the dragon uh, as a hoarder. You know that that goes back at least to Beowulf, maybe maybe further. But mm-hmm. I know that Tolkien took a lot of the uh, you know dragon hoarding gold in the Hobbit straight out of Beowulf, and I, I just I find that interesting to, to sort of turn that on its head and make it more like an OCD characteristic. That, that's, yes, that's fascinating, yeah. and and potentially not harmful. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, being a collector and being a hoarder is largely a, a question of discernment, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, so, so David, where can people find your work? Oh gosh, I should have figured this out ahead well, of time. I can put it in the show notes if you want to say just check the show notes yeah. if that's more comfortable. Yeah, I'll try to find out what's available online. The problem is, is that uh, some of my favorite things are only available in books. Yes, and uh, or in uh, journals that don't that haven't come into the twenty first century and started right things. Mm-hmm. We. Largely have dealt, I mean, m- most of our uh, guests have been academic. And so that's like, uh, that's a common problem. So common thing. Yeah, yep. Don't worry yep. about that. I mean, you, if you, you send me some things you want to link to it. I mean, our listeners are used to the fact that some of these things are exorbitantly academic priced and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. still, uh, some of them manage to find ways to get to the stuff. I know there's services like Scribd and a few other places where they can sort of get some of these things, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah. I, I think even if they could just read the abstract, it might be of interest. Yeah. And then on social media, if you want us to link out to your social media. Accounts. Oh, okay. So yeah, on social media, um, I guess the best way to contact me would be Azagetti at, uh, well, at Azagetti on uh, Twitter. What does that mean, by the way? I, I noticed... So that comes from my, my Melville studies. Uh, Azagetti, A-Z-Z-A-G-E-D-D-I is a devil from one of Melville's most obscure novels, Marty. Okay. I've just found you on Twitter. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. great. Excellent. I've seen Marty and I've seen Typey and I've read about a third of, of uh, Moby Dick. So that's... <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, Marty is basically his first attempt at writing fantasy or not... not writing. It was really his first attempt at writing something that was pure fiction, not based on his own voyages. And, uh, and he just went wild. And... It wasn't accepted. Uh, and uh, But Azagetti is basically a, a, a devil that a philosopher character uses as an excuse to speak uncomfortable truths in front of a king who would probably put him to death if he thought that the philosopher wasn't being spoken to. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's okay. wow. what year was that written? Oh, gosh, uh, 1840s um, oh. or maybe 18, early 1850s. That's re- okay. So the reason I, I bring that up is because that is almost identical to how women in the spiritualist movement were able to use yes. spiritualism, which would be the same time period 
able to use. I kind of have a paper on that too. Really? Okay. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically about how uh, possession is used as a way to speak your true mind yes. in Japan yeah, okay. as well. Wow. In Japanese culture, uh, women are possessed by a cat spirit or a fox spirit. Is that, what is it? Uh, is that the, uh, I want to say kuni. That's not right, is it? Uh, hold on. What is the fox spirit? Uh, uh, kitsune. 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 Yeah, yeah, kitsune. Yeah. Uh, kitsune. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure you're saying it right. I'm saying it the way I, my southern <laughs> broken yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah, kitsune. Yeah, yeah, okay. So can you say it one more time the proper way? Kitsune. Kitsune. Okay. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, the the fox spirit basically takes over a, a wife who typically in Japanese culture, the the scary mother-in-law is the husband's mother because she'll probably in a traditional family, she would move in with the eldest son. And so the wife is treated very unkindly, typically, and uh, act, treated like a slave by the mother-in-law. And so the wife then gets possessed by a fox spirit or a cat spirit. And then she's like, just pours her heart out. You evil, horrible person, you know, and, and then they summon a uh, priest and he does a, an exorcism and then everything's fine. And usually the wife is treated a lot nicer for a while after that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> they, they they actually they featured one of those in the HBO series uh, Lovecraft Country. One of the episodes dealt with a, uh, ah. a, a Korean version of it, but it was oh I see okay. it was uh, I haven't seen it yet because it's not available in Japan oh, yet. No. But I've been okay. really wanting. I read the book and I I love the book. The the TV series is very different. I enjoyed it, but it's very different. I think they added a lot of complications. Mm-hmm. It is it is a complete story, and they've decided not to extend it. But I thought that that particular episode, can't forget, I think it was like six or seven, I forget, but it, as a standalone, it made a perfect standalone horror story. It didn't need to be a part of the rest of the story to enjoy it. So I very much enjoyed that. But yeah, yeah. I, and of course, I love the novel and, and the, the great acting. And now the uh, lead actor is going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, uh, oh, okay. okay, anyway, we don't need to go down that railroad or track or whatever i'm just <laughs> branch anyway thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today thank you yeah, so much for you. having me on i really admire this podcast it's got you know really great con- uh, production values compared to a lot of other ones <laughs> uh i have fallen so far behind in listening uh to podcasts because of the pandemic yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, many uh, choices. <laughs> well, I, I have. Uh, I normally would listen to podcasts while I'm mm. walking to yeah. work, which takes about an hour. Yeah. But oh. now that I don't go to campus most of the time, and because when I go for walks for exercise, I'm walking with my wife, I don't really listen to podcasts mm-hmm. anymore. I've kind of stopped, and so I'm like way behind in everything. Yeah. So I haven't listened to much for a while, but uh, but I, I listened to a couple of episodes over the last few days. And uh, really Thank you. impressed Thank with you. the quality of this. Well, one. I think so. what's happened is not only have people lost their commutes and a lot of the time, but yes. we've also like so many people found themselves stuck at home and maybe I could do a podcast. So like the number of yeah. podcasts is yeah. like exploded. And then the yeah. amount of time people have to listen has diminished. So it's, it's yeah. not been good for everybody's podcasting numbers, but I believe what will happen is as life returns to something like normal uh, or people find new ways to find time, 
the cream will rise to the top and a lot of people will fall out, you know, and then hopefully we'll still be here, still standing proud when all is said and done. <laughs> yeah, we'll still be sticking around. <laughs> exactly. But thank you so much. Well, we really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank we you may be back in really touch to talk about mermaids. That sounds really interesting. Yes. Yeah. I'd love yeah, to. to do if you if you'd like, I can ask if my writing partner would like to join sure. for yeah, that. Yeah, love that. Yeah. She's brilliant. I mean, she's really brilliant. And she's my best friend. And and uh I I would love to to do that with her. That sounds really that would fun. Be great. So, uh, yep, we'll possible. keep in touch. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you very much. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Professor David Farnell, an English literature teacher in Japan, as we discussed Frankenstein, mermaids, and lots of other monsters and monster-adjacent topics. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation with David. Please stay tuned, because we've got lots of monster topics to cover for December, including our Christmas ghost special, live YouTube events, and hopefully we'll be able to get some results from my research into the strange case of the hairy hands of Dartmoor. So stay tuned! We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Accidental Creative, Clever, and Kick-Ass News. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Stay tuned, stay safe, and stay spooky. In a Monster House presentation. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. 
Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. 